0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Radical Bureaucrat, a podcast for people who want to change institutions from the inside. I'm Sam Rosaldo, and I believe that good government matters, like, a lot. Yes, me too. I'm Abram Guerra, and I believe that complicated problems never have simple solutions. Oh, me too. If you work in a bureaucracy like we do, or if you care about bureaucracies, then we think you'll get a lot out of our podcast.
1: The Radical Bureaucrat Today we are talking to Vinny Sheraldi, former commissioner of the New York City Department of Probation and head of Juvenile Correctional Services in Washington, D.C. I was excited to talk to him about his tenure in both places because he oversaw some pretty radical changes. I really appreciated, though, that he spoke not just in terms of what he did, but how he collaborated with others to make change come about.
0: Yeah, I like that, too. I also liked that he seemed like a really good example of a radical bureaucrat leader uh, and the kind of leader that I would love to see in, in these kinds of positions of um, positional power uh, in our institutions.
1: Absolutely, and he's just a good guy to talk to.
0: Yeah, he's a fun guy. So why don't we get started?
1: Let's do it. If you like what you're hearing on our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a world of difference. So Vinny Chiraldi, welcome to The Radical Bureaucrat. We're really excited to have you on. Um, As for a long time, I've watched you as someone who has created really significant systemic changes for court-involved young people. Um, You know, working in District 79, I really work on how to create educational opportunities for students coming back from juvenile incarceration. And so seeing the work that you've done has been inspirational and and has impacted my own work in the courts. Um, Well,
2: thank you. That's a really nice bunch of stuff for you to... Start
1: off by saying <laughs> well it's true. I wanted to start by asking you about your background and how you got to where you where you ended up so how how did you get started in this field
2: so I was working i started working for a uh uh, a juvenile uh, group home, state-run group home in Binghamton, New York when I went to SUNY Binghamton, which is now Binghamton University,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and fell in love with it instantaneously. I was just loved working with the kids. They weren't all that much younger than me. I was like 20, and they were <laughs> 17. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I was doing that and also for a little bit later started getting my master's in social work at Syracuse University so I was, you know, doing that seventy-five mile drive from Binghamton back and forth. Mm-hmm. Lovely winter drive. And a guy named Jerry Miller, Jerome Miller, spoke in my uh, one of my policy classes, and he had run the Massachusetts juvenile system in the early uh, late '60s, early '70s, mm-hmm. and he um, had deinstitutionalized the whole system. He closed all of the facilities down, all the large institution-like juvenile facilities put most of the kids home or in foster care or group homes. And then uh, he had about 800 kids when he started in locked large facilities. When he left, there were like 60 kids. And Jerry spoke very pejoratively about his staff, really mm-hmm. derided them, talked about how they had sabotaged these efforts and how they were abusive to the kids. And, and I was, I was a state juvenile justice system staff member. So I argued with him and I, left class arguing with them, followed them down to the elevator, got <laughs> yeah. the elevator. We were, I was arguing with him. I wasn't done with him. And um by the time the elevator landed, he hired me. Uh-huh. Wow. And I and I ended up working for his nonprofit which was called the National Center on Institutions and Alternatives in the New York office. My boss was a woman named Marcia Weissman who ran who uh, ran the Center on Community uh, Alternatives which was Jerry's New York branch for a while. And so that got me into alternatives in New York. And then I I moved uh, to California to run their office and that became the center on juvenile and criminal justice which I was the founder of. So that kind of got me into the nonprofit sector and got me into the notion that we were really putting way too many people into lock custody. And that if you really just spent time thinking about better ways of doing it, you could actually achieve that.
1: Yeah, mm. I love that initial story. the The moral of the
0: story is: uh, argue with people. Yeah, I, mean. I feel like that. I feel like that gives me so much hope. I've gone afterwards <laughs> to so many speakers and argued with them. I've never been offered a job though, so I should keep trying. Is what I've heard. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
2: well, I have a different moral to the story, because okay. And it, and that became apparent later in my career uh, when I ended up. So I, I ran the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice, then I ran the Justice Policy Institute, which was more C.J. C.J. Was, uh, did alternatives to incarceration. J.P.I. was much more of a, a policy-focused shop. And that's when the the mayor of D.C., uh, I was blisteringly critical of the juvenile system in D.C. Op-ed pieces, commentaries on the radio, all sorts of stuff like that. And he hired me to run the juvenile system <laughs> and sort of you know made me put my money where my mouth was. And when I went into that system, uh, you know, I had i I had sort of absorbed Jerry's attitude about the staff, uh-huh. and I assumed that they were you know that they were beating the kids up, they were having sex with the kids, sexually assaulting them, they were selling them drugs and they were actually sexually assaulting one another it was it was bedlam, and I assumed that when I met them and those things were really happening, I assumed uh-huh. that when I met them, they would wear the de- their depravity on their sleeves. I just assumed that I would hate them right and I didn't i didn't hate them they were the kind of people you'd like to go to their house on sunday to watch the football game uh-huh. and hang out at the barbecue with and when we started doing good things not all some of them you know deserved to be fired and deserved to be probably arrested uh, for some of the things they did but a lot of them were just turning a blind eye to bed stuff which mm-hmm. i'm not trying to justify sure but if you sort of look at their lives and 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 you know what other employment opportunities were available to them and how how they were weaned in the system and the massive rationalization that had gone on over time, Mm -hmm. it becomes more understandable. I'm not, I'm not sure if I forgive it, but Mm -hmm. it's more understandable. And getting back to the story about me and Jerry in class, that was already happening to me two Mm -hmm. years in, you know, two and a half years in, I was arguing with Jerry who closed all these institutions down because we were the good guys we staff, mm. so the things we were doing must be good, because mm-hmm. otherwise we wouldn't be doing them. And that's mm. classic cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. I could I could really see how over time, if you're if you're working in places like these that that uh, that are harmful to young people, how you can go from being a decent, hardworking, you know, care about people person to being you know the kind of guards that we saw in Shawshank Redemption
1: you become indoctrinated to a certain extent.
2: Either that or you leave. I think, I think we wish that if we were in that spot, we would be the hero of that movie.
0: Hmm. I think
2: most of us wouldn't be the hero of that movie. Most of us would leave or we would acquiesce. I think that's what most people do most of the time.
0: Yeah. I wonder if that kind of sets up a interesting framework. If you think about it, like, both leaving and being this hero that fixes it are sort of the extremes. And then the acquiescing is just a sort of day in, day out. But is there a day in, day out resistance? And I think in many ways, like that's sort of what our podcast is about, is trying to figure out what it looks like to be in these spaces, but not to become rationalized and sort of apathetic, but to be really highly engaged and critical, even of our own decisions civil servants and really embody the servant part of civil servant.
1: I I wanted to ask you though, what lessons you learned along the way that served you when you did take on uh, leadership in, in government bureaucracies?
2: Yeah, I think one advantage, so when I went inside government, I had a big advantage, which is I had never thought I'd work in government. Mm. And didn't care if I ever worked in government again. Mm -hmm. And for some people, you know, if you've been in government for 25 years and you rise to the level of being a director of a department, you want to keep that going. Yeah. And so a lot of those folks, instead of doing their jobs, they try to keep their jobs. And when you do that in this field, you're toast. You're done. Mm. If the bureaucracy is more important to you than the mission, you're never going to achieve the mission the bureaucracy will just eat you up and that was never going to be true of me because i never cared if i had another job in corrections again Hmm. and i told that to the mayor of 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 dc mayor williams was the one who hired me i said look to fix this i'm gonna have to get bloody right i'm gonna have to fire people that don't want to get fired i was the 20th director of that department in dc the department of youth rehabilitation services in 19 years so there were more than one of us a year Mm-hmm. So the staff didn't know really how to run a juvenile justice system. You know what they knew how to do? Get department heads fired. They would mm-hmm. leak stuff. They would help kids escape. I mean, they did <laughs> crazy stuff. I mean, they literally would help kids escape. Mm. They planted cocaine on one of the administrators and then alerted the people searching the vehicle that was going into the facility. that There was cocaine in the trunk. You know, of course, everybody saw as the subterfuge it was. But still, I mean, they were very serious about Defending the status quo. So I told the mayor, "I said, look, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get 95 percent of the blood on me, but 5 percent of it's gonna have to get on you. So if you're not down for that 5 percent, hire the next guy. We're gonna have to make watershed reform, and we have to make it faster than staff should reasonably have to absorb it. It's just the way it is. I wish we could go slow and everybody would hold hands and we'd come to consensus. We don't have the time for that." people are beating kids up, they're selling them drugs, they're sexually assaulting them, they're sexually assaulting each other. We have to we have to move really fast. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the federal courts taking this thing over. All of that came true. I got assaulted by the staff, not not physically, but, you know, four or five, I can't even remember votes of no confidence. (laughs) You know, uh, lots of stuff would leak. I would find I I was finding out about stuff going on in my facility from reporters. Like, they would call the reporters before they'd call me.
0: So, uh, I think that when you work in these kind of spaces that you're describing, there's this dimension of public perception, right? I wonder if there aren't some of those, like, common misconceptions about court-involved youth that you'd love to, like, get the word out and debunk. Like, what are some some common myths that you've been working to debunk about these youth, and what are some ways in which... We, in our in our culture and our society, tend to be like heavily like misperceiving what's actually going on there,
2: yeah, I think the biggest one is that large locked facilities contribute to public safety. Like mm-hmm. youth prisons contribute to public safety. And I think New York is sort of exhibit a in that discussion, New York City. So from two thousand and six to two thousand and ten, there was a two-thirds decline. In a number of kids from New York city going to the state's office of children and family services, state youth prison system, two thirds. Mm -hmm. Then we we got close to home past, which was moving all the kids into small, uh, home-like facilities within or very close to New York city. And, um, and district 79 was just completely cooperative and supportive and innovative in that process because it it ran all the schools for those kids. So Tim LaSanti, Nick Maranacci were heroes in that process, right? Mm-hmm. So now you got all these kids coming close to home. We were actually afraid when we initiated it that the judges would put more kids into these facilities because they were better. You know, they weren't abusive and they were uh, close, so kids could parents could visit them. So. You know, we started a bunch of new alternatives, but we held our breath when we started close to home, at, fearing that the number of kids in, in facilities would go up. They went down again by two-thirds. Mm-hmm. So now New York is like under 200 kids in facilities, you know, for the biggest city in the country. That's not bad. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think 20 or 30 are in locked facilities, super small number. And juvenile arrests have declined twice as much, double the rate of pretty close to home, so we have fewer kids locked up, We have them locked up in a very uh, better environment when they are locked up. They're all close to home. nobody's in a big youth prison. They're getting much better educational services, and they're not getting rearrested anymore. In fact, they're getting rearrested less. Myth number one is these youth prisons equal public safety. State after state in America is reducing the number of kids they have in locked custody. California, from having 10,000 kids in locked custody. They have like 600 kids in their state-locked youth prisons today, and juvenile crime has continued to decline. Mm-hmm. So myth number one is that.
0: Because you were talking about the lower and lower numbers of kids um, that are in these locked settings. I wonder if those numbers include... Um, are young people that are in locked settings, but have not been convicted. So what comes to mind right away is the Khalif Browder case, right, which which has gotten a lot of attention, um, and is a, you know, horrifying and tragic story. But does that represent a very small number of people, like you're saying? Or are there other numbers that aren't accounted for in that uh, couple hundred people you're talking about?
2: So, no, the, the couple hundred people I was talking about were only sentenced kids. That right. doesn't include pre sentence kids. So the, the super good news about the number of kids pre-trial locked up is, again, that is way, way down. So there are about 30 kids right now in juvenile detention in New York City. Those are kids who committed their crimes before the age of 16 or were accused of committing crimes before the age of 16 who are in Crossroads and Horizons. Crossroads and Horizons were built for a combined 240 people, so there's only 30 kids in those facilities. We used to have both of them full, and Spofford, that was another detention facility, and kids on the barge, when when Mayor Giuliani was mayor. So we had four overflowing facilities, and now we have two of them left, and they got 30 kids in them. So that's Mm. super terrific news. And then the number of kids under age 18 at Rikers is way down. I think, it's, I think it's like 107 was the number last week. So between 107 and 30, you got like 137 kids under the age of 18 in New York City in detention in an 8.6 million person city. That's pretty damn good. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that some of those young people are uh, awaiting the disposition of their cases way longer than they should be like Khalif Browder did. The city has put efforts into reducing the lengths of stay for kids who await trial and, and adults too, by the way. And they've they basically focused on the longest stayers and have reduced the number of those long stayers by like 50%. So that's good news, but I don't think anybody's spiking the ball on the end zone in the end zone on that one. I think there's still work to be done there mm-hmm. and, Work is being done there by the mayor's office and the judges and the prosecutors and the defense attorneys there.
1: You know, you talked about the advantages you had going into government, but it's still, as a human being, it's... I know there's hard parts to this work, and and I'm wondering what your lowest points were. I mean, even... Even just having your your staff undermine you, or if if that was it, or you know, what were the biggest hurdles, the biggest the the lowest points, and and even the biggest failures um, where you yeah. weren't and able to. And how do it you
0: how do you overcome that? Yep. How do you get past that and keep uh, working toward the mission?
2: There were uh, there was a steady state of trauma for me during the five years I ran that place. I was there was always a steady state in DC in DC uh-huh. that was cause it was terrible. And every night I went to sleep and every morning I woke up knowing that the, that I was in charge of a thing doing terrible things to people. And that was just a steady state. And then it was, that steady state was punctuated by occasional atrocities. A uh, couple of kids got in a fight. It was a setup fight. Two kids jumped another kid. Staff grabbed one of the two kids that jumped the other kid, and then it became a, quote-unquote, fair fight. And the intended victim killed the, the intended victimizer. It wasn't. I don't think he was trying to kill him. He just kind of flipped him off him, and the kid hit his head and died. I don't have to struggle to find out the worst day of my career. That was absolutely the worst day of my career. Um, and I'll never forget it. I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember crying with the kid's mother who was mad at me, but also understood that the, her son was trying to victimize the other kid. and Not that that makes it okay, but... And so that was bar none the worst. But there was also another time where two of my staff members beat, just mercilessly beat two kids up in front of a, more than a dozen staff and more than a dozen kids. Then they handcuffed them hand and foot, dragged them through a mud puddle to humiliate them, and dumped them in the infirmary, mm. and those kids had done something to staff, to to another, to a fellow staff member. This was early in my time there. These two guys were enforcers essentially, uh, and they, you know, whenever whenever something bad would happen to staff, their job was to beat the kids up, and and make sure that everybody knew that if you mess with staff, you're gonna you're gonna take a beating. Um, and I tried for two years to fire one guy and ultimately lost at uh, arbitration because the uh, kids were terrible witnesses uh, and I'm not sure they just they just weren't good witnesses and I'm not sure that the uh, um, arbitrators you know valued their testimony even if they were good witnesses Uh, I only had one staff member willing to come forward and his life was a holy hell for the two years, actually forever, we had to put him on desk duty. And then the rest of the staff, nobody would say anything, even though they had seen it. None of the other kids would say anything because they didn't want to be snitches. And uh, seven or eight staff testified on behalf of this guy as to what a fine upstanding guy he was, um, largely because he was the enforcer who used to protect them during the extraordinarily chaotic years at that facility. Mm -hmm. So you got to think again, I'm not trying to forgive folks, but if you were working in that facility for 20 years and there were 19 different department heads and it was chaos and kids were assaulting you and your fellow uh, workers and these guys were the heroes that rode in and protected you, Mm -hmm. you might think that way about them, too. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was really hard to get people to believe we're going to we're going to turn it around, guys. You have to you have to believe me because. Everybody gives a good speech when they become the director, right? Mm -hmm. We're all coming in gung-ho, and then five minutes later, we're gone. Mm -hmm. But they're still there. So you have to think, am I jumping on board with this guy? Like, this guy's a visionary leader. He's coming. He's got all good ideas. Do I jump on board with him? Because if he's gone in five minutes, then I was just Vinny's boy for all this time. And my fellow uh, workers are not going to view me so well. Mm. So a lot of folks held back until they started to see the changes. And then more and more people came on.
1: I mean, there's something about persistence, and, and, and you said right from the jump that you needed the political cover in order to be able to stay that long. Um, That's right.
2: Two mayors, too. So I, yeah. I had political mayor cover from both Mayor Williams and then later Mayor Adrian Fenty. Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's certainly something about being able to stay in one place long enough for people to see you as someone they can trust.
0: Yeah, it's striking to me, and and I think I, I think about this a lot. And people, you know, people have these sort of traumas that they face. You know, what you're talking about about the the enforcer and the staff around them, and you know, for for perhaps decades, there's this really dysfunctional system that is traumatizing these adults in addition to these children. Um, and and so then, are you going to listen to this like you know guy who's coming in? as a hero, right? But sounds great, but like maybe isn't gonna be here very long. Part part of it is just that like people are traumatized and they have to work through that trauma in order to be able to see a different kind of status quo, right? And so yeah I you know we don't really we don't really talk about that a lot in our organizations. We don't think of our organizations as like locations of healing. We think of our organizations as locations for efficiency as locations for decision-making. We don't really think of them as spaces of healing. Um, and yet, in order for people to be able to function in a different way or in a more humane or just way, um, we really have to process that. And that seems to me like a like a really difficult leadership challenge to to be able to change that culture. That's right no I think that's absolutely right and I I have to say I was
2: worse at this in in DC than I was in New York in New York I got a lot better at it Um, uh, I also had staff that were more forcefully supportive of staff development like I said I was angry at staff in DC and it took me a while to realize that I had to get over that that I had to get past that and view staff as an asset I needed to develop Uh, and so Mm. and I did it just I didn't do that from the outset. I did that better in New York, and I had a couple of staff that helped me an awful lot with it. Michael Agnabeni was my chief of staff. He's now, I think, chief operating officer at ACS. Um, he was just super at holding staff events and organizing them. Uh, and then Kathy Coglin had been a deputy commissioner over at the Department of Correctional Services. And she became uh, uh, my deputy commissioner in charge of community programs. She just ran these fantastic uh, um, uh, educational events twice a year at the various different universities around New York. It was like a big conference for all my probation staff to come and learn and share their knowledge and absorb more knowledge. And it, it, between the two of them, uh, the, the, the esprit de corps they helped establish, and then Honor Bermudez, who's now commissioner, also just was completely sort of devoted to her juvenile staff. She was the head of juvenile probation. And so I had, you know, I was fortunate to have around me people who knew more than me, <laughs> which, is, <Yeah. laughs> which is great to have, about uh, uplifting the staff, viewing them as an asset. Yes, there are gonna be bad apples in there. Yes, you have to appropriately discipline them, all of that. But you know, if all you have is a hammer, all your problems look like nails. And my yeah. staff weren't now. They were good people. And when, when we, when we um, developed them properly, uh, then, then uh, they flourished. And when they flourished, people on probation flourished. Fewer of them got locked up. More of them finished probation successfully. More of them got discharged early. Yep. More of them turned their lives around.
1: So and you talked about for systemic change to happen needing to have leadership that was willing to come in and you talked about the forcefulness of of, of immediate change needed in some places. Um, but it's nice to hear you talk about the balance of also building on your staff strengths and having people who really had some institutional knowledge and knew how to build off of that. Uh, because sometimes we see the the institutional leaders who want to you know, just blow the whole thing up. Um, that's and, right, and then, that's right. And I I question the sustainability of that model.
0: What's wrong with blowing the whole thing up? <laughs> I don't understand.
1: Well, <laughs> that's another Depends podcast. Depends on what the thing is, yeah. I think. Well, look, I wanted to ask you about something else that really interested me when I saw you at the Beyond the
0: Bars conference a few months ago. Sam, Sam right now is wearing his Beyond the Bars t-shirt, just so you know. I know, yes I am. <laughs> A nice t-shirt I, I try to
1: pick them up when i go to the conference um everybody should check the conference out it's uh i think they've had eight years now it's been going on but anyway i heard you speak about creating change from the inside out and we're really interested in that paradigm because while we both really believe in the power of good government we also recognize that really radical change requires public support so what does an inside-out strategy even mean and and can you give us some give us some examples of what that looks like
2: sure and just to echo what you just said you know kathy bodine geraldine downey cheryl wilkins um cameron rasmussen the the folks they put together to run that uh beyond the bars conference it's absolutely outstanding if people haven't been to it they should really make an effort to go it's a columbia center for justice and I've just moved from Harvard to Columbia in October mm-hmm. and I I really believe that because of the center's work, uh, Columbia is perhaps the most sort of aware Ivy League College about the justice issues that face America of any of any. Certainly way more than Harvard was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I think I think another myth that needs to be tossed on the garbage heap is that I did this or anyone does this, right? Mm-hmm. You need to You need to be really careful about that one man's battle to do x that's bull um one man or one woman does nothing and so this this should be viewed the what 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 happened in dc what what we were able to achieve in dc should be viewed in a sort of historical context there was an enormous amount of work by advocates in advance of that and by a a blue ribbon commission that was established in new york city i'm sorry in, in washington dc that was chaired by the, 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 the leading judge of D.C., kind of like the Lippman Commission and, and what's going on here with uh, Just Leadership and a Catal Center around closing Rikers uh, and, and, and the mayor's office. So you had this sort of constellation of strong advocacy, strong sort of moral leaders like judges and you know commission members, willing uh, uh, bureaucrats, even if they weren't initially willing, they were uh, able to be convinced, uh, and that's the combination where you're able to to make reform when you get in there. Uh, and and I, my view, you had to keep nurturing that.
3: Mm-hmm. You couldn't
2: just get in there, put your head down, and say, "All right, man. Now, all those things happen. Now, I just got to plow forward." I constantly had to be touching base with all of those people. I constantly was working with the advocates. Constantly was working with philanthropy. The the uh, members of the commission, I established an advisory body for the department, and, and many of the people who were on the commission, including the judge that was the head of the commission, came onto that advisory body. I gave them carte blanche to walk through my facilities. I actually gave them the keys to my facilities so they could walk through and write reports and send to me, and we would sit down and turn them into work plans to improve things. So I got real transparent about it. But all those folks that were banging on the outside of the doors, I brought them in.
1: Is it ever not transparent? I mean, are you ever like making that that private phone call, text message? I just wonder about those times when maybe your bosses wouldn't want you talking to those advocates, but you need those advocates to take an action to, to have your back or, or something like that. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm, I've watched too many movies, but but this is how. I'm No, no, no. I mean, these.
2: those those things definitely happen. I yeah. mean, they would. There'll be times when bad things would happen at the facilities. Staff would leak them. city so council would hold hearings and say, let's, let's bring this in and have a conversation. I knew staff was going to stack the meeting and testify against me. And I would call the advocates and say, okay, man, you know, the drill. Uh-huh. Um, uh, we and need here's to balance the, here's what that. happened. Yeah. Here's the facts about what happened. And sometimes the advocates would say, Hey Vinny, we're going to come yell at you. Cause that's, we, we don't agree with you. But most of the times they knew we were trying and that there was a lot of wind uh, in our face um, that was pushing back. The status quo does not give it up easy, right? The status quo exists for a reason, because it serves a lot of people's interest. And when you fight it, it fights back. And uh, you're a fool if you think you can just go in there and uh, and just sort of play by some sort of Hoyle's rules and uh, and win. You have to uh, be a political organizer as well as somebody who knows how to run a, a department.
0: So, I'm trying to think through how how do you translate the what you just said to people who aren't the 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 sort of leader at the top of the the food chain or whatever. Um, but people who are more in the sort of middle, um, because I think a lot of power, a lot of institutional power rests with people who are sort of more the mid level, um, bureaucrats, managers, deputy directors, supervisors. Um, how, how would you sort of advise people who are in those sort of middle of the org chart positions to try and play the play out the sort of game that you're describing?
2: Yeah. So I've actually seen folks do that, uh, even in DOE. Cause I, you know, I co-chaired the, uh, The school safety uh, task force That uh, Mayor de Blasio established Mm -hmm. And there were plenty of people There were like associations That principals had established And there were progressive teacher associations It wasn't just You know, the sort of uh, leadership That had a say But people had a say at the middle levels Through associations they had established Uh, There were good people Working within DOE Who were, you know, doing research And informing the uh, the task force and pushing for, you know, sort of enlightened approaches like um, like restorative practices and schools and social-emotional
1: learning, those things were super important. Well, Vinny, we're getting to the end of our time, and we just wanted to ask if there's anything else you'd like to add on this topic or anything that you want people
0: to be aware of. Um yeah, this is your chance if you've got a book that you want to plug or uh, <laughs> uh, uh, well, a mixtape you know the, that's coming out, you know, whatever, whatever you'd like to share about.
2: Mass incarceration is going to end, and we have to approach it that way. We can't approach it as if we can just nibble at it. If we mm-hmm. were just nibbling at it, uh, we'd be rebuilding facilities on Rikers Island right now, and mm-hmm. we're not. We're closing facilities on Rikers Island, and that's because— folks had the, had the guts to stand up and say, this needs to end. So I guess what I would say to people is, I, I understand that occasionally things need to be done incrementally, but we need to act incrementally, but dream boldly. Mm. And that our, our dreams and our pushes and our goals need to be the bold pushes and the bold goals, and then we can get there incrementally or, or boldly, depending on the cert- set of circumstances but we shouldn't dream incrementally mm. because then we'll do nothing.
1: I love that. I mean, I think that's why we have this podcast. Sometimes you work in the system and there's a certain extent to which the system can can limit your vision and it's it's a difficult tension I think especially I I think there're challenges at all levels and and I know for me in in the middle it's a challenge to create that space for myself to to be able to dream. Yep. So I think that's right. Um, well, look, we really appreciate your time.
0: Um, we'll keep you posted. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time. I'm, I'm definitely inspired by the work that you've been able to do, having heard about it for the first time here. And i um, just very grateful for you to take the time today.
2: Thank you so much for your, uh, for your doing this podcast. I think it's a very cool thing that you guys don't.
0: If you like what you're hearing on our podcast and you think these are questions that your friends or colleagues might be wrestling with, help them out. Yeah. And help us out, too. <laughs> yeah. Spread the word. We really want people who grapple with the same questions we discuss on the show to engage with us. That's right. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rad Bureau.
1: That's R-A-D-B-U-R-E-A-U or email us at
0: info at yeah, and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. It really does make a world of difference. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. All right, so we uh, we just got off the phone with Vinny Chiraldi. Uh, really interesting conversation. Um, yeah, so what did you think? I mean, I was really impressed. I think especially there's a, a kind of a courage in the, like, not afraid if I never get another job sort of comment and a, a sense of, honesty about like his, his assumptions and how his sort of thoughts about uh, the people that were working in these kinds of environments evolved over time and how he learned to sort of partner with those folks and and try to transition out of the sort of adversarial thing. I think there's a lot of really good sort of case study in like managing in difficult situations sort of notes um, in the conversation. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah.
1: You know, I look at Vinny as somebody who I look up to and I've seen make an impact as a leader. And I also look at him as kind of an exceptional character. Mm -hmm. And especially now in preparing for this podcast, having looked at his CV and realized, like, he was running shit since he was in his 20s and that's a certain type of person that can do that and has those types of probably innate leadership qualities. And I just, I look at his example and and I, I say, what what can I take from the example? But also there's something about him inherently that maybe
0: it's, it's not gonna be for everybody. Yeah, there's like that elevator story, right? I sort of had a similar thought when he was telling that story. Cause like they tell you when you're, when you take like a career planning workshop or like a resume coaching thing, anytime you're having a conversation about you're managing your career, mm-hmm. People like tell you about the elevator pitch and how you mm-hmm. gotta have a good elevator pitch, whatever. And like, here's Vinny like getting mad at the speaker and like following him out and then taking the elevator. And by the end of the elevator ride, he has a job. <laughs> so he's like the story that that elevator pitch idea is based on. And yet, every time I hear a story like that, I can't help but feel like it just feels so unrealistic. Maybe I'm just I have too much social awkwardness, like, I, or I'm not cut out to be that person that gets a job at an elevator ride, like. It just seems kind of fantastical, or just like things are sort of perfect and fall into place. Like, how much of this is just a remarkable sort of uh, talent, which actually kind of bugs me a little bit because I'm really, I really strongly believe that like human talent is normally distributed, uh-huh. and I don't like stories where well, you just chalk that up to exceptional potential. Like, I think a lot of humans have exceptional potential. Um, and that circumstance and things like race and class and all this kind of stuff has a ton to do with whose potential gets realized. But I, so I don't see it as fantastical. I believe the story. Yeah, no, I believe it it really happened. Yeah, (laughs) I believe that
1: it really happened. And I also think, and I also agree with you that like there's talent everywhere, but there are different types of talent. And it's a certain type of talent to be an effective commissioner of a city agency. Um, and I've seen people like Vinny before who I've looked up to Um, you know Cammy Anderson used to be the superintendent of District 79 she went to Newark she had a controversial tenure and uh, I learned a ton from her and I always looked at her like wow like her talent set is is really unique you know And, and maybe everyone's talent set is unique but she has this kind of leadership quality where she's can be unassuming and unafraid in a or seemingly unafraid in just a variety of circumstances and just take on leadership. And she's always taken on leadership, like from being the captain of her crew team in college. Like I know, it's not that kind of crew team. <sighs> okay. The larger point is that type of leadership, which maybe also feels like a kind of extroverted American style of leadership, but uh-huh. it's a unique skill set. I don't think the lesson is to aspire to do
0: that exactly. I guess it's hard personally. And now we're entering into the territory of like psychotherapy, but I guess it's just a little bit hard for me personally to feel like, well, then it must make sense that like, I'm not already a leader of something like that. And so I guess I'm destined to be a middle of a bureaucrat for the rest of my life. And like, that doesn't... That I don't know like that's not that's certainly not inspiring like like, okay, like how do you get there and do that and don't tell me that it's like pixie dust because like I don't have any pixie dust. give me something that I can use, you know yeah. And and then
1: you might say that he got lucky, that it was circumstances.
0: Um, See, I like that better. I mm -hmm. like calling it luck better than calling it, like, a unique skill set. Because, like, luck, okay, if you keep trying, you'll get lucky eventually. Or Mm -hmm. you won't, and that's fine. It's just some people get lucky and some people don't. That's fine. Well, so for me, though,
1: I also, I think part of the skill set is not giving a fuck. Um, And... (laughs) not i don't want to say not caring completely because obviously that there, there's a certain there's a level of listening that has to take place but when you decide that what you're doing is the right thing and that you have enough backing to to make your decision then you're going to move forward like it was interesting that his low points obviously the lowest point was when a kid died and then there's another low point where a kid is is abused and he can't get rid of the staff member, but there's no low point when people get mad at him, right? Right. Uh, it's not about that for him. I think that part of the thing that that's hard for me in leadership is is the blowback of people being mad at me. There's an element of self doubt that I don't hear in people like Vinny when when folks are mad at him. Like he has a sense of clarity around the decisions that he's making.
0: Yeah. And I mean, one of the things, one of the big things that he tried to be really clear about was that it's a myth that it's like the one person, the head of the department or whatever, that's the one, you know, it's a team, it's a team of people and it's too many people to name. Even if, if I don't develop that set of abilities uh, in time for retirement or whatever, like, like that's okay. I can still be, Um, a powerful contributor to you know in his case the movement to end mass incarceration I I gotta admit I I had like a big you saw this uh, listeners probably didn't see this I had like a big smile on my (laughs) face when when he said uh, that mass incarceration is going to end I feel like that is um, that's like a necessary thing to keep repeating right yeah Um, or perhaps you know uh, Yes, I agree, and mass incarceration is not the issue I spend most of my time on. You know, the idea that, like, uh, disproportional outcomes for students is going to end, the idea that racism is going to end, the idea that inequality is going to end, right? These are like bold statements. You can have a radical vision and commitment to a radical vision. But also think about what the sort of operational thing is is it radical or is it more incremental he was also making a case that we need to make radical
1: changes right that he doesn't i didn't hear anything in his comments about embracing an incremental approach to to this well problem. i don't think
0: i don't think he took Very meant very many of the incremental paths. Right. He did say that, like, depending on the context and the and the situation, it may be incremental that are the next steps that we're taking. Right. Yep. Sometimes it just feels like all the steps are incremental.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Although in his story, you know, the uh, he closed down a prison and uh, reopened another one, and then he was in New York when close to home happened, which was legislation he had a part in pushing through and implementing, mm-hmm. uh, which essentially closed down multiple upstate prisons uh, for New York City children. So so let's end like good radicals. Abram, what's your one takeaway from this conversation?
0: As hard as it is to like fully, fully, fully internalize, I think it's you have to not be afraid to lose your job. You have to not be afraid um, to never have a job in government again, yeah. and that's such hard medicine to really swallow. Um, but you just—I guess for me, you just have to like own that risk. Like, if this is going to lose me my job, is it worth it? And if it is, then I can't—I can't choose the job over the mission, as as Vinny said. That's my takeaway as
1: well. Ah, I knew this would happen,
0: but but uh, with the caveat, okay,
1: that I've got kids. Mm-hmm. There are certain realities, and you know, Vinny said that after having run several nonprofit organizations, and I don't have that on my resume, right? So it's never that simple, and I do think I use that calculus a lot in my work, like you know what the heck I'm going to go for it um and I'm going to take a chance and it might piss somebody off it might even block me from a promotion but I'm also not like offending people left and right you know and so I, I just think that that message is a powerful message I think it's one that I think about a lot I think I know we both think about it a lot but there is that piece of it that it's it's nuanced
0: yeah all right We should also end, as always, as good bureaucrats. The views expressed here are our own personal opinions and do not reflect the official or unofficial position of any government agency, policy, party, or leader, or really anyone besides the two of us, and maybe you, but maybe not. This content has not been sponsored or approved by anyone and was mostly just made because we wanted an opportunity to talk about things that matter to everyone, whether they realize it or not. Thanks for listening. Bye.